All right, welcome to another Ember Weekend. I'm Jonathan Jackson. And I'm Chase McCarthy. And we are joined today by Sam Selikoff. How are you doing, Sam? Doing good. This is going to be, uh, I'm really excited about this. Uh, this is going to be uh, your second interview on Ember Weekend. I'm a seasoned vet. You're a seasoned vet. <laughs> this was, that was that was one of our first interviews. That was like many, many moons ago. Many moons. Um, it was an epic one too, I remember. Yeah, yeah. definitely. We talked about uh, Mirage, which I think we're probably going to continue touching on, which that's pretty impressive in and of itself because I'm pretty sure we interviewed you in 2015. I'm yeah. not positive, but I'm pretty sure. I think so. So long running project. That's pretty cool. <laughs> Yeah, and we're broadcasting from a bunch of different places, as usual. I'm in Jacksonville, and I think, Chase, you're in Round Rock? Yep, Round Rock, Texas. Yeah, And Sam, you're in uh, NYC, or are you somewhere else? Yep, in Manhattan, in my um, studio-slash-office-slash-living room. <laughs> so uh, so you're in the Ember Map studios <laughs> That's right. right. That's yeah. right. This room, has, this room serves many functions That's as great. apartments in New York, too. Yeah, of course, of course. All right, so uh, we don't actually know what this episode's called. We'll get to that at the end. So let's just dive in. So Sam, you've been on the show before, but uh, for the people who may not have heard about you or listened to that episode yet, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you've been up to recently? Absolutely. So my name is Sam Selikoff. I've been programming for about five years now. I got into Ember in late 2012, 2013, more kind of heavily, right around the 1.0 days. And um, I was in Boston at the time, got, got involved through the Boston Ember meetup with the Dockyard folks. And yeah, ever since then, I've kind of been really involved in the Ember community. I was a front-end developer at TED Talks, the conference company. And um, yeah, that's where I met Ryan Toronto, who's also been you know deep in the Ember community, the Rails community for a while. And then about six months ago, we, we over the last year, I guess we both quit and started our own company called Ember Map, where we make videos for Ember developers, and we do some training and consulting on the side. So yeah, it's kind of me in a nutshell. Awesome. Yeah, cool. that's great. Yeah. So as a, as a side note, uh, you mentioned briefly that you were doing some consulting work. What kind of consulting are you doing these days? Is it mostly um, Ember work or is it some Rails work? Or are you coming in mostly to mentor Ember developers? Or We've done some of, a little of all of that stuff. You know, we ideally right now consulting the training is to kind of pay the bills while we're working on Ember Map. But we really want to focus all of our efforts on training helping teams with their Ember developers, finding Ember developers, leveling up Ember developers. I mean, that's what that's what Ember Map exists. And these other things that we do are kind of just more customized services on top of that. So the goal is to have, you know, if if the market's big enough, if if the pricing works out, we'd love to be making videos on Ember Map all day, making more content for the site, making more of it free. If again, if the if the subscriptions can sustain the business on its own, hire more people to make content. That's kind of like a medium to long term goal. But yeah, in the short term, we're doing the consulting as well, and it's basically all we really want to kind of double down on the um, the education aspect of Ember because that's what we've had the most experience with at our companies and and in mentoring and so forth. That kind of ties into this talk you gave uh, last night, right, at Ember NYC about educating people and even like spreading, I guess, spreading the news about Ember. I don't know how to put that. Like yeah. marketing, really, marketing Ember better. Yeah, absolutely. Kind of setting out on our own and meeting with companies and trying to figure out what problems companies are having that they need help with. You know, something we came across a lot are Ember companies that are looking to hire. And basically, they chose Ember for, for a variety of reasons in the last few years. And, you know, as we've seen, like, typically, Ember is not the most popular technology. 
first Angular was was more popular, now React is more popular. If you gauge the interest by, you know, something like posts on Hacker News every week, it's something like, I don't know, 20 to 1 or something like that. So if you're a business who is an Ember team and you're looking to hire, we've found many, many of these businesses are, have just had a hard time. Part of the the value proposition of Ember is that, you know, all these Ember apps look the same, they share conventions. And so it's supposed to be easy to bring developers in and then get them being productive within your team right away. And so this is kind of like, it almost feels like a mismatch to us just thinking about this. And so my talk last night, I just kind of wanted to have a conversation with some of the folks at the Ember NYC uh, meetup and ask them, have they struggled with this? Have they struggled with Ember's reputation versus a technology like React? when it comes to technology decisions at their team, you know, how are technology decisions made and what what things are important and what things lead to whether Ember is going to be successful at your team or not. So yeah, there's a, there's a lot there. What were the kind of, some of the next steps that as, you know, active members of the Ember community, we could do to maybe make Ember more visible and maybe more approachable? I feel like the the learning team has done a lot to make it more approachable, like from an actual, like if you're already, you know, going to dive in and we have a lot of, you know, very competent technical people trying to make that story easier. But mm-hmm. as far as approachable from like a marketing perspective, how do you mm-hmm. how do you broach this topic with your with your supervisor or your team lead or your you know CEO? Right. Well, yeah, we talked a little bit about you know why do some teams choose Ember and why do some teams choose React or Vue? And you know, us in the Ember community, we do talk a lot about conventions and the power of conventions and and why that makes Ember a good choice. But when it comes down to choosing a technology for a new project, you know, a lot of times folks look at something like React or Vue and say, look how simple it is. This is so easy and I can open it up and I can just write a component and there we go. And, you know, even in presentations I've given, uh, this is something I was thinking about, you know, you put up Ember logo and Angular logo and React logo in the same slide and you're kind of talking about these things and making comparisons, right? And so... When it comes to using a technology for a project and you say, well, Ember has this history, it has all this baggage, it's big, it's slow, it's complex, it has a high learning curve. And look at React, it's so simple. You're really comparing the minimal set of Ember with the minimal set of React. But the problem is that the minimal set of React is like this rendering layer. It's like the V and MVC. And the minimal set of Ember is a CLI application. So you're really making an apples to oranges comparison here, right? Right. And if you're actually comparing a full single page application, you know, you're not just talking about a React component anymore. You're talking about a React component. You're talking about a store, you know, maybe Redux. You're talking about a router. You're talking about Webpack. And now this thing that you have is comparable to Ember. And now the simplicity argument doesn't really hold anymore. And so I think understanding this and you know, we talked about this last night. We talked about, again, like how decisions are made. Another aspect of this is that people care about different things. And ultimately, sometimes programmers talk about making tech decisions in a vacuum. So they'll talk about like, oh, you know, tech decisions are made for the wrong reasons at company X. If only they just considered these aspects, then um, we'd be using the right tech and we wouldn't be like wasting all this time. But I think that's kind of the wrong way to think about it. I think the reality is that we work on teams with people and people have different values. You know, some people care a lot about testing. Like that's just something that's really, really important to them. And so telling them that your framework is 30 kilobytes is not going to really have a big impact. Some people care about 
you know, a nice UI experience. Some people care about good architecture and best practices. So, so talking about, you know, why tech decisions get made, a lot of it comes back to figuring out what the values of your team are. And so then when you translate that into how can you kind of sell Ember to your internal team, if you find yourself in conversations, it's really comes to building trust with those team members and finding out what they care about and then showing them, hey, look, this is how Ember can help in this area. Yeah, I uh, I had a very kind of similar experience, and I, I think this happens a lot in, in large companies. When some greenfield, like maybe internal project, or, or in the case of uh, this one, we were we were consulting for a, a, another company. They wanted a product. We knew it needed to be a single-page app. This was like a long time ago. I think it was pre-Ember 1. And my senior developer at the time was going to make the call on what framework we were going to use. And back then, it was Ember versus Backbone and Knockout. And he was he told me to spike all of them, gave a task that was uh, kind of a portion of what the project we were going to do was, mm-hmm. and I did all of I did it with all of them, and we set back uh, a week later and evaluated them. And the number one thing that that made the decision for him was the size of the project structure, like of Ember versus Backbone and, and Knockout, because it was like three files in each one, each of the others, and then Ember had this big project structure. And he was like, well, that's way too complex for the mm. problem you had to solve. So the, he chose Backbone. I was on a project for like a year. By the time I left, the Backbone, the, the Backbone app just exploded into like <laughs> you know hundreds of files. No one, no one really knew how it worked, but like me and him, we we documented it, but you know it, it's it's completely custom to what we what we're solving. And then so you know I, I think the Ember project would have maintained structure, had defined ways to do it, right. I mean, even being pre pre one. Right. And I, I think that kind of happens today, where people when they go to evaluate Ember versus React versus Angular versus you know, anything else, they spike something and they look at the project and they say, how complex is what I just had to implement? And, but, but you're not implementing an entire application, you're implementing like a spike. Absolutely. And you're making a decision at the beginning of the project when you know the least and you're making it on the basis of like, right, the getting started tutorial. You know, th- there was an analogy here, Ryan brought this up, uh, the folks at, uh, at RethinkDB wrote this article when they shut down and they said that they believed they had a good technology, but the marketing side was was where they messed up because people would go to MongoDB, they would try out the API, and they would say, look, this has an awesome API. They would try to create a thousand records. It would do it in like no time at all. And they would say, yeah, this looks great. Let's go forward with it. And so, you know, it's exactly like what you said with the backbone story. You know, I was talking with somebody last night who was in a situ- similar situation that their new job is a React gig. And yeah, at this point, their application has three different Flux implementations in it. And the point is that you have to make all these architecture decisions that are baked into Ember. And again, it's like we know this, but but for us to solve the marketing angle and to be able to communicate the business value to companies, to teams, and say, look, like this is going to cost you money. Like when when all your engineers are making decisions about how to integrate which the the current Flux implementation of the year with with the router that you need, like this is going to cost you real money. And we do have to say, well, look, this is. For better or worse, programmers do look at getting started guides and look how easy things are to get started. And that is a big influencer of their decisions. So is there something we can do from the Ember side to help with that, to make it even easier, but still communicate these longer term value propositions? And also something else we talked about was like, just like the story you just told, uh, Chase, like if, if there's folks who are experiencing these stories, who are going to places where they made a decision based on limited knowledge, and then it turns out that it didn't pan out. Maybe writing about that would be helpful and sharing your experience with a multi-year project 
you know, in Ember versus in React or, or something like this could be useful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and, and I think you, you kind of touched on something that, that has been in the back of my brain for a little while, and it's like software really is kind of a people problem, basically, you know? Like, the technology can be the greatest, it can have the highest value proposition, but at a certain point in time, a person is going to have to actually, like, you know, approach it and start start somewhere. Right. Uh, and I think that there are things that are emotional and non-rational that happen there where, you know, people have past experience or they know somebody they respect who is a strong React supporter or mm-hmm. whatever. And I don't know how to broach that sort of problem because there's sometimes where I'm like, hey, Ember is a thing. And like, I get a no before they even know what Ember is, really. <laughs> you know, and it, and it's, and I think it's, you know, there's some biases and there's some like, you know, there's some, you know, things, like you said, uh, you know, it's 20 to 1 on Hacker News. Mm-hmm. Um, Stack Overflow is overwhelmed with React questions and answers. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess that's true of Ember too, but, you know, even more so with React. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is, there is some, there's some real power to that. And breaking into that is, you know, that is why Ember has been a perpetual, you know, runner-up yeah, like runner in popularity. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, and, and again, just kind of talking about what this with Ryan over the past few days and like trying to summarize all of our experience at, at different companies, I think, the times where we've seen the most success in kind of converting folks over and, and, and getting them to even just get past that initial hurdle is finding out what they care about. And so, you know, it might be true that that React is the, is the most popular in Hacker News. But, but if you care about testing, if you come from a server-side background and you love testing and it's part of your workflow and you see Ember's testing setup, I mean, that might be all it takes. And you actually see that as extremely powerful and there's nothing... That, that holds a candle to it in other JavaScript communities. And so maybe that's what you focus on instead of trying to defend other things like it's really not not that complex or it's not that hard to learn. Or something. Like that's not going to, you know, you're not going to win that battle. Yeah, I think that's great. I think approaching each individual conversation on an individual basis and say, hey, listen, what are your concerns? And here's, here's Mirage's answer to that. It may not be what you need. You know, you may still want to go with some other route, but here's the answer to that question. If it's testing, here's Ember's testing story. If it's, Developer ergonomics, which I think is probably the biggest sell for Ember. Uh, here's uh, Ember's answer to that. If it's server-side rendering, for instance, that's a really hard problem to get right anywhere. And uh, Ember kind of comes with a pretty good solution out of the box. You know, uh, I, I think you're exactly right. I think that's a very keen insight. And it's one that I think probably as Ember developers, we should really be aware of when we have conversations with people, especially people outside of our community. Um because it really is, it's a people thing, you know? Yeah, and you got to find out what they care about, you know? Exactly, yeah. And actually kind of give a shit, you know? Like, that's, right. that's a big part, right? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, yeah. and I, I think that definitely comes across, too. So, Sam, you've been uh, working on Mirage on and off for, geez, like, two, two years? Three yeah, years? Two, two years, two and a half, maybe. Wow, uh, okay, so first off, Mirage is, like, one of my favorite libraries in Ember. I think it's becoming kind of the de facto standard <laughs> way to handle, like, acceptance tests in Ember. And yeah, I guess I'm just kind of curious as to what you've been working on lately and what's kind of on the horizon for Mirage. Absolutely. So thanks for the kind words, by the way. Last, I think last summer was when I started working on like the, the ORM layer. I realized, you know, if we're going to mock a server, like we basically need to port all those concepts over. And I finished up the initial work on that and it proved out to be really useful. Like I think it removed a lot of code and this kind of serializer layer. And now, more and more, with folks using more standard backends, the amount of effort required to mock is, is very is is getting simpler and simpler. So, the main efforts over the last few months has been 
trying to complete that ORM layer, in particular the, the polymorphic relationships is what I'm working on right now. And once I finish this, which I'm pretty close to, the ORM will support all the, the schemas that Ember Data supports. And we just, Offer Golan just added this, uh, this feature to Mirage that automatically, if you happen to be using Ember Data and you install Mirage, Mirage will discover your, your models and their relationships. So that just landed. So once I finish the polymorphic relationships, there's also another PR that's mm -hmm. almost done that will let Mirage run in the server in the Ember CLI server and, and actually send the responses over the network so you can use the network tab and then and also and also like test out things locally like WebSockets with two browser instances, which you can't do right now because all the data is in the client, which I would have liked to do because I was just working on like a teleprompter. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I wanted to test out syncing between two browser instances. Anyway, so the goal, so once I finish all, once that stuff ties up, which should be, you know, in the next couple like months, like two months or something, I want to release 1.0. And at that point, you know, the idea is you should be able to install Mirage. You should be able to say like this dot resource a couple times in your config. All the models are already ready to go. And you have like your server that's that's going to let you kind of start writing tests and, and develop locally. So, and it's going to be, you know, real server responses. So these are the kinds of the things as the libraries evolve, like folks have asked about. And so I think auto discovering your Ember data models and then having the responses go back and forth between a real Ember CLI node server is going to be a, a big, big win for the project. So that's kind of been what I, what's the focus on the, of the, of the current development cycle. You know, we used Mirage in production for a little while on Ember Weekend, like as a kind of intermediate step to getting a real backend. Like it was our, <laughs> our way of getting away from fixtures and prepping for a backend and then finally mm -hmm. moved off. You know, if you had had just a server in Ember CLI, we probably would have just like rigged that up to work in production for much longer. Yeah. Yeah, that's, a, da that's a danger because... <laughs> Yeah, you know, it is still. It, I still consider it. I mean, it's 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 a fake server. So, <laughs> so Mirage will always be focused on improving the developer experience and the testing experience for the developer. So i I never want to make. I never want to compromise that. If it means like, oh, it'd be really nice if you added something that could like handle authentication. Like yeah. at the end of the day, when you write like a production server, there's a thousand things you have to consider, and I don't. I don't want anyone have to consider that to get Mirage working yes. to help them in their development workflow. <laughs> but it is funny kind of to think how far you can push it. With working on Mirage right now, is there any like specific area where you kind of need more eyes or or some assistance uh, in some sort of initiative? Yeah, so I, I think the the like the model and ORM relationship stuff has been consuming most of my attention and I just want to finish that cuz it's so close and then I can kind of take a step back. You know, there's been some some key folks helping out with like I said the auto discovery of Ember data models and running it in the server. Stanley was even tweeting about hacking on getting Mirage working in the service worker, which could also be useful for a variety of reasons. So basically, if anyone's motivated to work on it, just please reach out to me in the, there's an EC-Mirage channel in Slack and I can help. I've been, I feel like I've been bad about listing out the priorities of the project and trying to help people get started. So after I finish all this relationship stuff, that's going to be my focus. I'm going to try to take a step back, go through the issues, prioritize all the feature requests that we have and kind of enlist help. So yeah, if you're interested in helping, please find me and, and I'll be happy. Anytime anyone needs time from me to help pair on Mirage or, or work through the code base or even wants to just learn about it, I'm, I'm more than happy uh, to give that time to that person. So Sam, we mentioned a little bit earlier that you and Ryan Toronto run Embermap. And I guess you, you touched a little bit on what drove you to create Embermap, but you want to really dive into that. And let's talk about what Embermap does, what's the goal of it? 
Yeah, sure. So one of the, our roles at TED was working with junior developers, folks who didn't have a lot of UI experience or Ember experience, kind of leveling them up. And then in mentoring other companies as well, we did that. So yeah, we kind of found ourselves wishing we had more resources to help them out. And we found ourselves answering similar questions, you know, just, and then also talking to kind of experts at other companies, they were saying the same thing. And they were saying that they felt like they were bottlenecks to their team because all the junior developers who were learning Ember uh, had to come through them and ask them the same question. So we were like, you know, we wish we had just a great five minute video to explain contextual components that we could send this person. So that's where the idea came from. You know, we thought we kind of explored different ways uh, we could get more resources onto the internet. So, you know, making a course for a site like lynda.com or Pluralsight. But, you know, these these sites are, I mean, they're really, they have lots of content that span tons of technologies. And, you know, they'll have like an Ember course that might be outdated and it might be a, an hour or a couple hour intro to Ember. But again, us as working professional Ember developers who we know what a route is, right? The problem is we don't know like how to compose these components for this specific use case. So we really had the idea that it, what we really wanted was a, a site dedicated to professional Ember developers. And that was going to make content that was relevant to their day-to-day -day work, that was relevant to the challenges that they had as they were scaling their applications, growing in complexity, when to use services, when to use contextual components, when to yield, how to do it properly, how to draw boundaries in your app uh, in a reasonable way. So these are kind of the concerns there, and it's not really suited for those other sites. So yeah, that's kind of what we've been doing. And yeah, making videos is hard. <laughs> yeah, actually, I was, I was I really I'm really curious about that. So we we kind of did a little shop talk uh, around like microphones and equipment and gear and things like that. How has creating these videos been uh, difficult? So I know there's obviously like the tremendous amount of research and then refining of a I'm assuming a script. I'm not positive. Mm -hmm. And then also all of the technical components of actually comprising a screencast mm -hmm. that is as high quality as Ember Map is. Mm -hmm. So. Uh, how has that been for you? And what's like the most surprising thing that you've had to kind of learn uh, through the process of creating Ember Map? Yeah, blood, sweat, and tears. I mean, there's really <laughs> no way around it. Um, yeah, we were just talking about mics. And even once you start getting into more professional quality mics, figuring out how to get the signal to your computer is like, do you need to amplify it? Do I need batteries? Do I need to have an interface card to convert the you know, analog signal to digital. And that's just the mic. And when you have a screencast and you have a mic and you have a film, because we started using film footage now of our, you know, of our faces talking and all of that getting working in concert together. I mean, there's, <laughs> there's a lot of points of failure. It'd be great if we can kind of extract some stuff here where it's like you sit down, you push a button and you can just go. <laughs> and I think we'll get there. But yeah, it's, uh, it is very, very labor intensive. So if you've been following Ember Map the whole time, our videos have kind of, we, we kind of are always trying to experiment with the best way to make content. At the beginning, we were doing our voiceover format where, like you said, we take the scripts, we, we refine them. The scripts do take a long time because they really drive the whole thing. And then we would do the voiceover and then we would bring that in and then add the visuals and the coding afterwards. And that, you know, we wanted to start using footage because you know, maybe it's because we worked at TED and we watched one too many TED Talks. But uh, <laughs> uh, no, really, though, actually, Chris Anderson from TED, he will say something like, you know, he does talk about this. And he's like, you know, there's there are lots of media formats out there and they all have their purposes. But at the end of the day, humans have been watching other humans talk for so long. 
all the all the um, sub vocal communication that goes on and the, mm-hmm. the body language that happens. Sometimes, you know, if I was sitting at a company talking to you about why you should use a service here, like we would look at the code, but then I would like say, okay, look, let me just tell you something. And we would just be talking to each other. So we're trying right. to bring that to our videos and our product because sometimes when you're talking about a concept and you just want to focus on this kind of theory that you're talking about, the best way is just to connect with somebody over film. So we started doing that and yeah, it's, it's hard, but we have gotten better. I think at, at the beginning, I think I was measuring our production costs were about a hundred X. So for a one minute video, it would take about a hundred minutes to produce, which is pretty insane. Yeah. So for five minutes, hours of work, basically, you know, th- three yeah. or four hours to write a script recording, and then another two hours an hour of, of recording the audio and mm-hmm. coming up with the visuals and then two hours of editing, you know, the back and forth. We do a lot of back and forth. That's something we're working on too because because production is so expensive. How can we get the most feedback early on in the process as possible? I mean, it's really like coding, right? It, you want to start with static mock-ups and get that feedback because mock-ups are like whatever, 100 times cheaper than engineering is. So it's a lot of the same principles there. But uh, there's some, I was just telling Ryan because I, I was listening to this uh Pixar in a Box series from Khan Academy. It's pretty cool. It's like the folks from Pixar talking about their production process. And um, when they made Finding Nemo, you know, they have they talk about how they do, they sit down with a script and then they make the wireframes and the storyboard and they sit down with that. And in this all these feedback times, they're kind of getting new information and changing and making adjustments. And then they go to render and they do it again and they keep making changes, but you want to do the most changes in the beginning. At the end, they had a movie that was basically ready to go, and everyone hated uh, Marlin, the main fish, because in the original story, they don't show that Marlin loses his family until the end of the movie. So you're like, why is this guy so protective of Nemo? Like, why is he chasing him around everywhere? Why don't he just let him be a little kid? And that didn't come out till the very end of the whole process. So anyways, I just found that as an interesting story. All that to say, it's like, it's just like engineering, you know, these very labor intensive production processes are hard to get right. And it's just a process of refinement and constant learning and iterating. And um, yeah, we're hoping to end up with something that we can share with others, either to help people make videos for Embermap or their own content and kind of distill what we've learned to make it really easy for others to make these kind of high quality, really personal videos. So I just recently watched the Broccoli series that you did. And I think that was uh, one of the better explanations that I've like ever seen on broccoli. Uh, broccoli is pretty dense and a little opaque to a lot of people. Could you walk us through, like, I guess, the process of that? And I'm also kind of curious as whether or not this is going to be the first of many on broccoli because it's really useful. And I don't know, you even brought you even bring it up in the in the video talking about how you know at first glance you're like okay well what's the difference between this and webpack or whatever else and you know and then and then kind of walking through all the different decisions it ends up being like oh this is really a very smart technology choice but it's hard to get to that point can you talk to us a little about about this broccoli series and how it went out yeah absolutely so yeah the motivation for the series was i was working with some clients who were trying to do some broccoli work and we're kind of running into some brick walls, it felt like. And, um, you know, at the same time, like over the last year or two, Webpack has come out. Webpack has become really popular. And Ember is usually really good about taking what's going on in the larger JavaScript 
ecosystem, whether it's, you know, language features or things like that, and figuring out how to roll them into its its stack. And so the question is, it seems like Webpack has become like this de facto standard. If you hit a block with Webpack, you know, getting an answer on Stack Overflow will be much easier than getting a Broccoli answer. And so it can be frustrating to know why are we using this thing called Broccoli that seems kind of, it seems eccentric, it seems not as well known. And so that led me to kind of, to talk with folks on like the core team who are working on Broccoli, who made those decisions, who are working on Ember CLI and, and really understand what it was, what the tool, what problem the tool was solving. And so, yeah, that's kind of, that was kind of the original motivation is like, okay, you as an Ember developer feel good when you are using Ember because you're relying on the architecture decisions that all these smart people have made, that the community has made. And we want to feel the same way about all aspects of our stack. And so, you know, that was kind of like the main motivation for the series. There's a lot of theory in there, understanding what problems it, it solves. And then mm-hmm. we do kind of do some coding of like bare bones broccoli plugins at the end. But, you know, how broccoli integrates with Ember CLI is like another whole thing. And I absolutely want to make more videos on that because ultimately that's what, you know, again, Ember Map is for professional Ember developers. And if you're an Ember developer and you're using engines and you have translations in both of those engines, you're going to want to write a block broccoli plugin to kind of take those translation files and merge them together in your final host app. And it's like, if you just know broccoli, but you don't understand anything about Ember CLI, you won't be able to do that. So yeah, I wanted to kind of set the bear, the, the foundations for broccoli so that we could do a course like that on Ember CLI, but also so that people understood like what problem broccoli is solving and, yeah. and how it fits into the whole story. I, I think that that's the that's the key part right there is just like w- answering the question why are we using broccoli and I think that series does such a great job of explaining that so I'm definitely looking forward to more more broccoli things and, and you're exactly right like your engines uh, idea like you definitely have to write an add on there you want to write a blo- broccoli plugin but like honestly there's so just so many cases when like once you know like how to do it uh, even even like some basic things you're just like oh yeah I could totally just do this one thing here or this other thing there. It does unlock a lot, just even even having the the broad picture of it. Right, so. knowing what the capabilities are. Yeah, when I was mm-hmm. doing some style guide work, I was switching a Jekyll site over to an Ember app for a style guide or like a wiki or something. And I was like, I really miss those markdown files. You know, and then I just wrote something really simple that took a template.md file within like my Ember pods and would just make it into template.hbs with just static HTML. But that way the source code was in markdown. You know, and that's like, that's great. So, so yeah, I think, I think once I understood how it worked and how it fit into the, to the build step in Ember CLI, it was like, oh, now I'm thinking about all these use cases that would be great to have. And I can just write them. I mean, Broccoli is, it's non-intuitive at first, but it's, it, the, the fundamental architecture is really sound, is very composable. And so it's awesome that we have access to this in our build pipelines. Yeah, I, I ran into an issue recently with a filter and uh, someone was like, um, I want to have multiple files output. Uh, from a filter, and then basically the answer was like, you can't do that. But the, it was it was phrased in a way like you can't do that. But it was like, no, no, you just have to go to like one more level above, like below right. that, and write your own filter. Kind of like uh, it was just not hard. There's plenty of examples of it, but it, it's funny because when the answer is like you can't do that, it's not saying there's no public API for you to do it. It's saying that this plugin that wasn't its original purpose, so mm-hmm. now you have to go to another plugin that might go one level deeper. Right. Right. Nice. So Sam, what uh, what uh, videos do you have coming up? I mean, I saw on Twitter you said something about a D three series. 
Yep, I'm working on a series on using uh, D3.js with Ember. And yeah, the tweet had a little video of the, the demo that we're going to be building in the, in the course. And it's, it's adding some D3 visualizations that interact with your Ember data. And so, yeah, that's what I'm working on. There's, I, I've used D3 on and off over the last three or four years. And, you know, once, once the framework started coming out, coming out, the frameworks like, you know, React and Ember and Angular that have their own concept of data binding, their own concept of reactivity, it was always kind of like, there was always a question about, okay, how does D3 fit in here? Because D3 has a concept of data binding. You know, you bind data to representations of DOM elements. And when the data changes, you get to say, okay, how do these DOM elements change? when there's new data, when there's updates to data, or when data leaves. And that fundamental idea of a, of a bound selection is what lets D3 be so powerful and lets you make these really complicated visualizations. But you know, when you have that concept layered on top of like Ember's component lifecycle, which has like the notion of an initial render and an updating render, like how do these fit together? So you know, in my experience, like I've tried a bunch of patterns there's a, there's some experimentation going on in different add-ons with different ways to integrate this, but I've kind of you know the pattern I like is what I'm going to teach in the in the series about what I think is the best way to approach this. So um, yeah, we're going to learn a little bit of D3 if you've never learned D3 before, and basically get something into your Ember app. Basically, how to just add D3 to your Ember app in a way that integrates with the routes and the data and all this stuff. So that's that's the D3 series, and then Ryan's working on a series which is called container components right now. But as we work through the script, we're realizing it's a bit higher level. It's really more about customizing components. But the idea behind container component is, um, and he has a great story about, about this kind of auto search, autocomplete search box that he built for Ted. And it was used in all these different situations. And as you needed to customize the listing, the templates more and more, you end up extracting this component that is just handling the data, yielding the data out, and letting consumers customize the template. And so it's like you don't even know you're using a container component, but that is what you're doing. It's just a component that's responsible for business logic. But instead of doing something like writing a function or a different ob a class that handles the, the data fetching, you're still using these UI components because they have such a good composition story. It's just that you're drawing a boundary between the data side and the presentation side. So that's going to be some of the stuff that he's talking about in that series, which also should come out, you know, within the next uh, next couple weeks. All right. So now comes the part of the episode that uh, I'm sure it just it makes all of our guests so happy. Uh, you get to name the episode on the spot, on the fly, because we're inconsiderate. <laughs> <laughs> what did you What did you say earlier? It's no longer a mirage. That's pretty cool. Yeah. That is pretty cool. It's not bad. Okay, cool. I like it. I like it. I like it a lot. And we're gonna we're gonna hashtag uh, Dan Gebhardt at, <laughs> yeah, the, at the end of it. It's good. Hashtag Dan Gebhardt. Hashtag, <laughs> hashtag Dgeb. It, it sounds like a, it sounds like a 1.0 like Mirage release thing. Like it's no longer Mirage. Oh, but, nice. Ooh. Yeah, that's good. That I mean, good. they have the, the all the Ember CLI releases have their their code names and stuff. Oh, yeah. So you, could, you could code name it. It's also very much like a dad joke, which is appropriate for Dgeb. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks for uh, sticking with us uh, through the whole episode. Thank you so much, Sam, for being a part of the show again. I uh, really appreciate you taking the time this morning. Absolutely. Once again, I'm Jonathan Jackson. And I'm Chase McCarthy. And if you'd like to follow along with future episodes of Ember Weekend, you can do so at uh, emberweekend.com 
slash feed.xml if you want to do the uh, feed reader or uh, on Twitter at Ember Weekend, all one word. Sam, I think uh, it's Ember Map, right? For your Twitter? Yeah, Ember underscore map. Ember Map, one word, would be great. It's like a suspended account. And I've asked a few times oh, no. trying to find if there's any way we could get it. So if anyone knows, that would be amazing. <laughs> so uh, so tune into uh, Ember Weekend and Ember underscore map, and we will be back next week. Also, as a side note, you can also join the Topic-Ember Weekend channel on the Ember Community Slack if you want to reach out to us uh, individually. And I believe we discussed a little earlier that there's also the EC Mirage channel if you want to follow along with uh, some Mirage stuff there. We'll see you next week. <laughs>